So do you see any downsides to these groups? Um, sure. Um, I think one of the reasons that uh one of the reasons that AA, I say AA is the model, um, and I think that's it's clearly the dominant model. Uh but it's it's maybe not accurate to say it's the only model. There have also been, you know, consciousness raising groups that have influenced the way that a lot of these groups have been shaped um, in Latin America in the '60s and '70s. Obviously, the base communities that the Catholic Church ran, which were often sort of dominated by people with leftist and Marxist sort of orientations, um, who tried to develop class consciousness. Uh, and I think more contemporarily, the there's a lot of different kinds of group therapy, like this group that I studied that was facilitated by therapists. So in many ways, those groups think of themselves as improving upon 12 steps, or maybe maybe they wouldn't say improving upon, they'd say something like doing something totally different because that's crap. <laughs> so 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 I don't want so I don't want to, you know, oversimplify and say they're all just doing 12 step. It's just that it's such it, it has been so popular and so successful and growing in Latin America, and it has created these gender segregated models where you can create a separate kind of intense sociality that it's been, you know, they just, I would say, I don't want to over uh, simplify that either because there are mixed gender groups, but the idea, like you were saying, it's more that people will look for a place where they can identify with other people. It's more about the mutual identification and the way that sometimes gender segregation allows that. So I, I would say, uh, yeah, there, there are probably definitely a lot of criticisms of the 12 step model in particular. Um, and in a way, these groups see themselves as either improving or superseding entirely what what what's going on there. But you know, when the research that I've seen on this and that I had to look into for my dissertation suggests that you know, a lot of the reasons why perhaps some of these groups work has less to do with the content and more to do with uh, like social network effects. And I don't, I'm not really qualified to judge that. But the idea just being that you know. You leave a social network and you join a new one and you tend to, you know, have your behavior and all kinds of other things fall into line with this new social group on the whole. If you're looking at, you know, these aggregate rates of how often do people stick with X. So, so yeah, I don't know um, really how to judge, you know, the quality of uh, the 12 steps strategy like myself. I'm not definitely not qualified to do that, but it just seems like that's been one of the main models. I just want to point out, not the only model in the U.S. too, like, um, Encounter groups, I think, have been sort of influential in the way that some of these um, twelve-step groups often run, and people have acknowledged that in the literature. So, you know, there there are lots of influences, I guess. So you would say, like the the biggest aspect of the potential uh, downsides of these groups is the um, the the standard boilerplate, which is that like people drop out over time as they lose enthusiasm or motivation or. Well, I mean, I think a lot of families would have complaints, you know, that it changes people's personalities. Um, right. Uh, and that they start to identify themselves in this way, like, you know, maybe make being an alcoholic, let's say, so central to their identity. On the other hand, it's interesting that in, in Latin America, most evangelical churches also demand total abstinence from drinking. Um, so it's not the only institution that's making that demand. Um so uh, it's it's interesting to think about why that is um, and whether some people could, you know, for cultural or personal reasons, modify themselves to not be addicted to or abusing alcohol, let's say, but, you know, just using it in moderation. Um, and again, not qualified on any of that, but it's just interesting to note that AA really isn't asking something 
so strange. And maybe that's why it, it's had an easier time growing in Latin America. And, and I guess, yeah, so people, people, there are definitely complaints about support groups, but I think by and large, um, you know, it's like Harriet was saying, um, there are such serious problems that men have, um, such serious behavioral problems, such serious violence. You know, a lot of these stories and these interviews, they involved suicide attempts, you know, att like murder attempts, um, severe violence, a lot of times, which was like briefly like summarized or something. Um, but they were difficult, you know, interviews to do. Sometimes they'd last three hours uh, and people would cry and, you know, they were discussing the most difficult parts of their life. And, you know, I... I didn't press or pry when I felt like it was, you know, emotionally inappropriate. I'm not a therapist, um, you know, um, but I, but, you know, people were voluntarily sort of, you know, given, you know, this explanation of the research I was doing and, and, uh, and I explained, you know, and of course in these groups, I wasn't asking them to do anything they hadn't already done in these groups lots of times. So I also felt like I was just in many times invoking the, the group setting and getting them to talk at length, which was interesting. You know, I, I felt like I was able to get to know about people people's intimate lives in this way that strangely didn't feel like exploitative or, um, I mean, th this was something they, they would do at churches and in, in these groups. And I, so I, I wonder about that. I wonder about, you know, what it is to change people emotionally so completely where they can go from sort of a small town culture where people have expressions like small town, big hell or something, you know, <laughs> um, where there's like a, a, a sense of the gossip and that people are talking about you and, and commenting on, uh, you know, everything that you do to right. joining a group where because of the structure, let's say anonymity or confidentiality or whatever, you can sort of, or a church, you know, you can sort of say the most intimate things about yourself, you know, the most, the things that you've done that you're the most ashamed of um, and, you know, get acceptance for that. So I think on the positive side, I mean, that, I don't know that that's hundred percent good, um, but it's a big change emotionally and what people are willing to disclose about themselves. I don't know that that's all good because I don't know how to judge that. And I don't, it's not really my job a lot of times when I'm there to feel like I'm judging it, but, um, right. but it was just so interesting um, to be able to experience and, and, and clearly with these men, you know, and also get me to think about myself a little bit. You know, it's changed me a lot. I think to watch in a practice of mutual identification with people you know, people talk about their lives and be like, you know, I'm not separate from this. I'm, I'm, I'm able to access this group because I am a man and I've gone through a lot of these things, you know, maybe not in their most severe forms, uh, but, but it, it's, um, you know, maybe a lot of therapists could talk about this too. Maybe you have some experience, but it's not something I would talk necessarily about at length unless I felt like it was reciprocal to do so, you know, in these settings. But, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, it definitely changes you in a, in a positive way. I would say all of this research, you know, with the churches and the support groups that I studied had positive impacts on myself personally. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because it does have parallels with the, the Occupy thing and that being a man festival thing. It was just that someone created a space, a forum, and just like you said mm -hmm. with your interviews, suddenly it sort of opens some something up. Like you said, it's sort of essentially giving them a chance to tell you stuff. So it's sort of setting up a situation in which that's that's what is going to happen. You know, it's kind of different <laughs> from, uh, I don't know, going to work or um, driving a car or checking social media. It's like, okay, this is a space. This is what we're going to do. See what happens. Well, well, I know. And that's, you know, when you said that, I guess that's, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just, <clears throat> I wanted to ask if, you know, what makes that the case when you say, you know, someone set up a forum, you know, I've heard some people talk about Occupy in terms of, you know, the, the drive for consensus 
synod majority, uh, the sort of egalitarian principles of the organization. When I was trying to think about this, I imagined it in terms of social organization and the norms and, uh, and practices, and also the emotional like, content of these groups as being the, the decisive factors. But when I try to think about what makes, like you're saying, what makes these things possible, you know, what makes the the Man Festival or Occupy, what makes these support groups, you know, possible in ways that they aren't in other parts of life. Uh, and so I'd love to hear, you know, y'all's thoughts on that, because I often wonder about that myself. One thing is just time, I think, is that, and maybe it's imagination. It's like, you know, potentially... It's just that it's not part of regular daily life. But, you know, potentially I could get a table and chair and go sit up in the street and just be like, hey, this is man hour. <laughs> Come and have a chat, you know. Um, there's no reason why I couldn't do that. Um, and that, that would be kind of funny. Um, but it's just that it, it's not sort of a culturally uh, sort of regularity almost, or at least certainly in, you know, my life experience up until those points, I guess. And I also think there's there's something really interesting I was listening to recently. It was a podcast about persuasion. I'll put it in the in the show notes. But he, the, the the saying was that you can't reason someone out of something that they never reason themselves into something. And so the idea, pro- probably what's happening with these spaces or support groups is that they're not necessarily a place of reason, right? They're a place of like you said, seeing yourself in others. Um, it's sort of an emotional connection. And then through that process of processing the emotions, mm-hmm. that that's where things change. You don't sort of, that's why, you know, stop smoking doesn't work because <laughs> it's like a reason mm-hmm. thing opposed to a, a feeling thing. Now, I don't know, Equa, if you have other perspectives on it. I mean, one of the things that you know, it's it's more of an observation, and I think also a potentially missed opportunity. But like, I'll, I see a lot of shifts of in masculinity that is happening through, like you know, institutions like churches and whatnot. That is a lot more religion based, and I think you know that having already that instruct in institutional structure makes it a lot easier. It gives it to a certain degree, a, um, you know, more of a, a sense of familiarity for a lot of people, you know, that like, I mean, you're, it's not just some random group by random people, right? It's like people, you know, from church or people, you know, there, there's, there's a little bit of a connection that kind of eases people into. Right. It doesn't raise the flag of like, has he joined a cult? Like, <laughs> is this a, is this a, like a, a flat out full on, you know, scam? I mean, all these things, you know, there, there are a certain aspects of like, I guess, you know, authenticity and authority that comes from being associated or, you know, being favorably looked down by or looked, you know, worked with by, by these institutions. You know, because they aren't separate from the church institutions, right? Well, no, they are. They're completely. They they are, but they but they they but it's not like they're oppositional too. No, no, I think that's the interesting thing is that they. Uh, I suspected that at least some clergy and some clergy did, you know, see them as you know a different spiritual authority, like a different religious authority, but in fact, they seem to have you know come to see themselves as existing in like a complementary relationship 
that there was something about public religion uh, or the way the church was that doesn't appeal to men, but they still want to get men to come. And one of the ways to do this is to get them to go to these groups where they feel more comfortable. And a lot of men that do go to those groups end up coming to church more. And uh, and so over time, yeah, I think they they don't see themselves, you know, neither the Catholic churches nor the evangelical churches see themselves as in competition, um, even though there must be some sort of competition for time and attention, you know. So, yeah, I, I, what, just to your point about, you know, these things take time naturally. There's a, there's a, I've heard a lot of people describe more negative experiences in Occupy largely around this issue of like, and there we argued for three hours. And I mean, reaching the consensus felt great at the end, but, you know, like, but um, that, it, you know, democracy, a lot of time in action. Um, so, so I think, yeah, I think that's it. I think in the media too, men are getting in churches um, positive images of masculinity that aren't macho, at least that would be the term in this context. They would say machista actually. Uh, macho, and here's a funny thing, actually means blonde in Costa Rica. <laughs> so they use the word mm. machista to describe a, as an adjective form or even a person, you know, um, a, a person who is macho is a machista, uh, but but macho means blonde. Um, and it's also used to describe male animals in general, like macho and embera are like used to describe male and female of any animal a lot of times. Mm. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I thought of these groups as forming a special place, but like you're saying, Ikoi, I think they they gain a certain authority or a certain acceptability by the fact that these churches have a positive relationship with them uh, that, you know, is important to think about. Because, you know, you are working with a lot of people, even if they're not necessarily religious, you know, you, if you grow up in, in certain countries, you do grow up in a certain cultural, you know, uh, a setting where being religious is a lot easier than completely not being one. And that, you know, it kind of still builds like your basic foundation worldview. So it doesn't necessarily contradict those things. Yeah, and also that you could probably make an argument that uh, we need institutions and a lot of them are failing or have failed. Maybe right. that's maybe that's just the state of sort of life all the time anyway. Maybe institutions are always failing, but because of, I guess, doomerism or <laughs> capitalist realism, neoliberal policies, etc., it feels like all institutions are just, you know, falling apart and the 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 religious thing, yeah, for all the sort of child sex abuse stuff <laughs> that's happened over time, it's still like, it's still there. Well, you know, when I when I read a lot of this, I was reading it through, you know, you're talking about some like something like the thesis of bowling alone, you know, that people are dropping out of, you know, uh, civil society institutions left and right, you know, churches just being one example. Um and, you know, I read it in also in the lens of uh, this sociologist, Robert Wuthnow, who um, wrote about the restructuring of American religion through small groups and support groups. And there's this massive study with like uh, a thousand different interviews and like uh, surveys where they, you know, did hundreds of different groups and then um, and then tens of, of different or 12 different um, ethnographic studies of different groups across North America. And one of the things that he that he sort of pointed out there was that um people were in fact you know joining other groups and there were some so so maybe the bowling alone thesis you know that people were dropping out of everything you know wasn't true they were being replaced by these new groups but it could be argued still that these groups lacked other things you know that churches and these earlier groups had had 
And one is that these groups are focused on peerhood. I think peerhood is great for, you know, a lot of forms of personal transformation and maybe the place, you know, as many of these groups argue that people need to learn new behaviors that they can take out into the world and be, you know, less of a machista guy in your family and all these relationships that they described at the beginning of this WEM group. And that is the goal. Um, but one of the things that men described to me in their interviews about why they in turn went back and joined their old churches or joined new churches after, you know, being members of these support groups was that, you know, churches are like an intergenerational institution where you can take your family, but you can also see other families and you celebrate the birth and death of other people in the congregation. And those are the kinds of institutions that, you know, measurably are sort of failing and falling apart, you know, bigger uh, family units. And, and uh, you know, so it's, it's interesting to me to think about that too, that, you know, maybe something of what churches provide is still kind of organizational until you have something to replace churches that are, you know, big enough that they contain multiple families and you can sort of, you know, pass through these life rituals of birth and death and people growing up um, and, and aging and maturing. And uh, then it will be difficult to replace them entirely without, you know, something that does that. It's a great point. It's a really good point. I don't know. I mean, are, are, there are perhaps other examples that maybe that people can think of, but... Uh, Dungeons I mean, and Dragons. Transgenerational wisdom being passed on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so on open license or something now, so it will forever be, uh, you know, something that generations can pass on, opposed to it being locked down uh, with intellectual property right. But yeah, I, I think it's a really good point, and it, it sort of goes back. Um, what's his name? Nassim Taleb, the guy who wrote Black Swan and Anti Fragile mm -hmm. and Skin in the Game. He's got that term the Lindy effect, which is if something's been around for a hundred years, chance that's going to be around for another hundred years. So religious institutions have been around for so long that they're not going anywhere anytime soon. And again, it comes back to that thing. It's like, well, even if you think religion is sort of bunk, it's like they, they have persuasive stories clearly, because otherwise it wouldn't stick around. And again, going back to that podcast I was listening to um, and something I was reading recently as well, it's like persuasion is more important than truth. And it, it, yeah, we had this uh, guest recently, a doctor with the NHS, just talking about the state of it. And, you know, for him, his method was to get out on social media, just tell the truth of what's happening uh, inside the hospitals. The thing I was saying to him is like, I don't know if that's going to work because I don't, I don't know if anyone cares about truth. Right. And, because yeah, mad shit tends to sort of fly on social media and in the news rather than facts. You know, facts are almost like boring. And so you need to, whatever, if there is going to be some future institution, like you said, that is going to mark these monumental moments of being a human being, it needs to be interesting. <laughs> it needs to be right. persuasive. It needs to be fun. It's not like, and, and emotionally engaging. I mean, yeah. I think that's the thing. You know, in the in the ten years that I went to Costa Rica, I watched the style of the Catholic Church. I think respond to the changing styles of the evangelical churches because the evangelical churches are bringing in these sound systems. I mean, I mean, they've not all got smoke machines and stuff, but they've got a band, you know, like going on, you know. And so it changed the style of the music of the Catholic Church. I feel like partly. In a sense that, you know, we've got to up the ante a bit and try to appeal to people on this emotional level. And music, of course, you know, does that. Um, and yeah. the styles of music they played changed uh, over time. And so I think, yeah, what you're saying, 
part of the power of those institutions is not just that they mark, you know, their way of being human, but that they do it in a way that feels emotionally authentic or maybe sometimes a little manipulative. You know, I, I, <laughs> I've seen the people like run these, you know, make these decisions about what song to play next. And, and there is a, there is a theory behind it, you know, but, but yeah, but at the same time, you know, people do, they, you know, we, we don't watch a TV show and say, I was manipulated the whole way through. It's like, yeah, but that's what you signed up for, you, you know, um, you know, and at the same time, you know, I think people, when they go to church, you know, that they wouldn't be horrified to learn that you had chosen songs that made them feel sad and then happy and then sad and happy, you know, um, they would have felt like that was appropriate. That's what they're there for. Yeah, it, it, there, there is a line, obviously, between persuasion and manipulation and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, if you watch a film, you're sort of willingly sitting down to be manipulated. If it's if it's well done, you know, <laughs> you're going to go right. on this emotional roller coaster, but you chose to do it. And I guess, yeah, the, the cultural stuff, it becomes all that um, hegemonic stuff about like, yeah, you can go down that rabbit hole. Are these really your ideas? Are they really your emotions? Are they the sort of... Are you acting out what other people in power want you to act out, et cetera? But um, yeah, just just as a side, um, it's my uh, my upbringing. My mum was the one who went to work because her job was paying more at the time. So dad stayed at home. And uh, then that just continued because mum's job was better paid. And so he was the sort of house husband. And this was in the 80s and 90s, right? So mm. the whole thing of, um, you know, school pickup or anything like that, it's like there was maybe one other dad. And so the, I think there was a, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't remember, but I I don't think that there was like a whole bunch of, from what dad had said, it wasn't like all the mums are like super welcoming, you know, it's like you're, you were the weirdo, <laughs> you're the weirdo guy. And, um, but yeah, I mean, I think, it, it's changing very, very slowly, but it is, it, you know, there's a whole maybe podcast episode to do on that, like being a, the, the, that whole world of being a stay at home dad and all that sort of stuff. But it's, it is sort of interesting how all these, what are uh, deemed uh, acts of care are sort of looked down on because, because that's the thing, right? Like everything happens or life continues because there is this background of care that's going on and so we all sort of survive despite the economic system <laughs> not because of it right yeah i mean you know one thing i've i've studied like you know co communes and monasteries and i'm really interested in like religious like special institutions where you do things and one of the things you see in a lot of religions as a transvaluation is the the taking these things that are considered either lower caste or lower rank or you know, all these tasks of if you've seen Game of Thrones, right, there's the scene where he goes, Sam goes to the, Sam, uh, he goes to the watch and he has to clean all the soup and, right. the, and, the, yeah. and the, you know, I don't want to bring it up, but, you know, it's this idea, I think in a lot of religious traditions that you take what was considered shameful or disgusting, or you take this disgust response and you learn that disgust is not morality. You know, you learn that disgust response feels like morality. And if we, can train ourselves ethically we might be able to train ourselves to feel disgust towards things that are truly you know evil but we but we can mistake very easily our disgust responses for morality even though they're not and and right. if if we if we undo that if we hang out with lepers and you know learn how to touch lower caste people and you know if we if we do all this th there's a real moral and ethical and like spiritual gain to be had by like going against that 
And so when Harriet was talking about this, that's one of the things I was thinking of was that in these groups, they're doing something that you see a lot of religions doing, which is teaching people that, that there's a, maybe even a Zen, a joy and like, I don't want to appropriate, you know, that term, you know, but maybe there's an aspect of like religious, like learning and practice through these mundane tasks of cleaning that, you know, has gone un, unrealized because it's looked down upon. And I don't want to get all spiritual about every time I clean a dish, but you know, it's like there is a way in which cleanliness is godliness, right? <laughs> there is a way in which a lot, they've always taught this, you know, these religious things that, in fact, that which we code as shameful and stuff is, is 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 a natural and good and caring part of life. This caring work, you know, it's actually maybe the best thing that we do, you know. Right. Um, you know, like that whole, you know, that the original sign of civilization is the healed femur, that kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Um, the idea that this caring work is actually what we're so good at. And that humans, unlike a lot of primates, I mean, not to get biological or into biological anthropology here, but one of the things that is unlike other primates, except for maybe tamarins and marmosets, and Sarah Hurdy has uh, you know, studied this, um, the mothers, mothers and others sort of research she does, that uh, we're cooperative breeders you know we uh, both care for and feed one another's young and almost no other primates do that um but a lot of dogs do that and cats do that and uh many bird like nine percent of bird species and of course there are social insects and stuff um but it's actually in in the field that i belong to but i think a lot of biologists would say too one of the things that's you know best about us and so you know, there might there might just be something that we're connecting to in, in a lot of these religious traditions where we just realize that society sort of inverts values on its own and maybe over time we've looked at this caring and stuff as being like a way to exploit people and have all kinds of unpaid labor but um but you know obviously taking care of your children is a beautiful thing and you know it, it doesn't always feel that way but you know like if you could <laughs> if you can keep the right mindset about it and not be just angry and tired all the time you know um you know, it, 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 there is a sort of beauty to it. So, well, that's the real horror as well, isn't it? Of of the way that men are supposed to be is you disconnect them from potentially, like you said, the best bit of being a human being, which is care, care for yourself, care for others, and yeah, yeah. that's that's robbery. You you sort of, and that's why you get suicide. That's why you get murder because it's just a complete. Uh, maybe that's too a simple explanation, but yeah, you just get detached from the best part. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, um, there's this thing going around the internet right now of this, uh, of this spoken word by this young black man saying most men, most men are never, and it goes on and on, you know, never experience acceptance. You know, uh, it, it, it's this, it's, a, it's kind of unfortunate because in this reaction video era, like a lot of, you know, sort of conservatives will like be responding to this and sort of like reframing it in a different way than it was intended, you know? Um, but, but it is sad, but he's, saying is true but it's just I, I was struck by how popular it's become you know i'm i have multiple accounts like sock puppet accounts in different social media because i try to eavesdrop on different you know algorithms essentially and like conversations that people are being exposed to and uh, part of this project the new project i'm doing you know uh, also makes that very advantageous but um it's extremely popular in all kinds of political and cultural uh, circles so there seems to be a real uh awareness that that's happening um and i guess that's good because i'm raising a young you know a young boy and uh i mean at least i think at the, at the moment and uh yeah you know you just you worry that uh you want them to have positive images and you, you try to be that for them but you know you, uh, a father is not a total institution you know they they go out and exist in the world and and you know experience the world like everyone else does so yeah you hope yeah. that there's a lot of positive images you know 
Yeah, the one everyone always resets to online is Aragon from Lord of the Rings. <laughs> like, that's a positive. I'm like, the, 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 you know, the guy still kills people with a sword, you know. It's not like, it's not like he's a, I mean, whatever. It, it, it is, it does seem to be a thing. The conversations that are being had online, which is like, what are, I guess it's a conversation that's had every generation, what are good role models? Because um, they do have an effect. They do make an impact, good or bad. There are role models that are just floating around out there. So, sorry, I don't have a, I don't have a succinct end for that. But equally, I don't know if you want to had any thoughts. Um, I had one last question, which is, you know, how do you think the, what do you think, you know, since we are leftist <laughs> podcast, um, where do you think, you know, the left is failing and succeeding in terms of masculinity? Well, I, I would say there, there's there's two things. Um, one, one is, I guess, images of masculinity, but I really, unfortunately, don't have anything clever to say about that. Um, I do think, I do think that groups like this have been and could be used in leftist organizing. Um, and I'm currently trying to drag uh, half of an article out of a friend who's a sociologist in in Spain. He lives in Barcelona. He has worked with PA, which is the anti um, eviction group that you know films have been made about. There's actually a film called Si Se Puede in Seven Days with Pa. And um, that uh, the organizer of Pa, uh, Ada Aracolao, uh, became the mayor of Barcelona. So it's a it's a very successful and popular you know social movement. Basically, during the Occupy period, uh, they were trying to evict people from their homes in Spain, and they fought against those evictions by having sit-ins. And in this film, you know, Seven Days with Pa, one of the things they look at is the way that in the first part of these seven days, they sit people down in what are essentially support groups, but they're about debt and the shame that people feel uh, in being evicted from their home and like isolated and, and blamed. You know, it's a bit like Graber's work on debt, especially the, if people want to listen to the podcast version of that, because it's just easier to get through. Um, there's a BBC series he did in the first episode. He sort of talks about the way that debt is made to feel like your fault and you're sort of shamed yeah. and, and guilted um and i've seen this also in debt um jubilee groups uh stephanie kelton in one of these vice you know videos um where they're talking about debt jubilee groups is sitting in on essentially what looks very much like the same thing where you get people to talk about the shame uh and uh of their debt situation and within seven days as the video you know the documentary suggests they've got people doing sit-ins they've bet they've essentially I don't want to say socially engineered like strong bonds, but they've they've created strong social bonds between people in a very short amount of time by getting them to identify with one another and their problems and their emotional experiences. And uh, and there's something to this for organizing, I think. You know, and a lot of the civil rights, you know, like accounts of training people to do these civil rights actions involved them, you know, imagining and like, you know, play, you know, play acting through the sort of abuses they thought they might face. Uh, so they didn't get, mm -hmm. so they didn't do the wrong thing, you know? I mean, so there's a lot of, I think, organizing potential in getting people emotionally bonded and creating a strong sense of identity. And I think one of the things I heard maybe Liam allude to is that there are these strong emotional states that are elicited from learning to organize people in this way and organizing on these, you know, norms and values. And, and if, if you can give people that experience, you know, I'm not saying support groups are the only way to do that. I'm just saying it's interesting that in both the debt movement in videos that I've seen, uh, one in particular that Vice put out, uh, 
in New York and this anti-eviction movement, um, they both featured using this technique. And of course, it's also, you know, had strong effects on people changing, you know, very disordered behaviors like drinking obsessively. So, you know, maybe there's something to it, you know, not just for changing people's private lives and, and their own, you know, relationship to the world and and their family, but um, but to, you know, organizing people um, and getting them emotionally synchronized a bit. Yeah, no, I do. I do think, you know, despite some of my, my criticisms with 12 steps, I think I always say that the benefit of, of those groups are specifically, you know, I mean, every group has the potential of you running into manipulative people, exploitative people, right? You also have the chance of running into really good people as well. Right. And a lot of people are very lonely, don't have any friends or, or connections or anybody they can talk to. I I'm sort of struck by that. Obviously, when you when you talk to men, a lot of men are in that scenario. A lot of, you know, I mean, a lot of people are in that scenario. And if you actually start defining friends, you know, because that's such a loose leak, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's like love, right? It's like you know, it's kind of like this broad shotgun of a word. But you know, once you start really defining friendships. Like, you know, a friendship is like, you know, someone that you trust implicitly that you can talk about the majority of, you know, what you're going through or what you're feeling um, without having to censor yourself very much or at all. Right. Um, If you if you say at all, if you say at all, then like vast majority of people say nobody. Right. I mean, that's what I'm saying, like in in the sense that a friend is something I don't want to say it makes it seem instrumentalist to say you need a specific thing from them, but that is a very specific thing. And if you need that, if that's what it is to have a friend, then, I mean, obviously that's a positive thing about if you can find the right group that doesn't violate other senses of other norms you have or your sense of personal autonomy or anything, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it can be something that goes from like, I have zero people that I can have this kind of discussion with to I have multiple people I can call in the middle of the night, you know, and and that that's good for people's well-being, even if you know, in a lot of other ways, we don't we wouldn't consider it the same as friendship in other settings, you know. Right. I mean, it can be kind of you know strangely powerful, or not so strangely. Yeah. I mean, it was just one of those things where I remember getting a a random phone call from a friend of mine at like three in the morning, and then I'm a night owl. I'm usually up, you know, and so I answered. You know, and it was just kind of like this. You answered. I wasn't expecting. I was going to leave a rambling voicemail, <laughs> you know, because I just needed to get something off my chest. But you answered. Yeah. You know, and it was just one of those things where, like, you know, when when they hung up, before they hung up, they were like, I really feel loved. Nice. Yeah. And and for me, I was just like, I just happened to be up. So I fucking answered the phone, you know. So, like, on my end, it didn't feel like that big of a deal. You know, I do think that... Emotionally, the, the effect of no one picking up their phone, it can't be easy for a lot of people, I'm sure, that are in like a rough spot. Yeah, you know, so, but but the, I, I just remember the, you know, how genuine that statement was, you know, before yeah. they said night, right? That like, I really feel loved right now, you know? And how sometimes like these simple gestures can really mean a lot especially when it's consistent over time. Yeah, I don't know if it's uh, male socializing or I'm just a arsehole, but if someone had said that to me, I'd have 
said like, well, you shouldn't. And then I've hung up. (laughs) 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 Then I would send a text going jokes. Love you too. Something like that, you know. Um, are you are you uncomfortable with intimacy, Liam? Do we have a problem here? <laughs> well, well, you know, you know, if Harriet was here, she might know. Um, George Valent is a, a guy that works on um, addiction and a number of issues at Harvard. He ran for many years the Grant Study, which is, I think, the longest run longitudinal you know, social experiment, like social study, where they followed these people for now like 70 years. And uh, he wrote a book called The Triumph of Experience about like his experience running that. But he also wrote a lot about alcoholism and and some of the counterintuitive aspects of addiction uh, from, from that point of view. But he was one of the people to say, you know, the, long, the long-term impact of being in these groups, you know, um, is, is hard for me to sw- accept and swallow because I don't, there's a lot of things I don't like about them essentially, but, but he says, you know, one of the things that makes them not work for men uh, that have, you know, maybe like Liam and I both have, you know, if you have a certain class training and background is like, this is a big part of it. This is also very much a class thing. You do not expose yourself emotionally and you certainly are like enthusiastic and, you know, um, mm. uh, it, along certain lines, he said, you know, men basically that were had enough education, like formal education, would not want to join these groups, and would not have any of the benefits. And therefore, you know, you could almost like it was, class was a strong predictor of not recovering from alcoholism in these studies because, you know, they they could not let their guard down enough to have the kind of connections they needed with people to keep from drinking, and um, and in these groups, oh, yeah. were, these groups were just like distasteful to them. And I experienced this a lot, a lot in America. You know, there are a lot of people like, oh, gross, you study support groups. Like that's, oh, I could never, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and there was this attitude right. like that. They just stand there and talk about their problems. These are men, you know, they just couldn't, right. it, it seems so, um, you know, but especially along class lines, um, you know, there was, a, there was this finding in George Valen's study. And I definitely experienced that, that I, I lived in a kind of a rural area, like, um, I think if I had done this study in a in a more urban area, I would have encountered a lot more resistance along those lines because that's what he found as well, you know. Right. Hmm. Right. There there can definitely be a a class factor in in like the lack of intimacy that is prevalent in our society. I think it's kind of like yeah, one of the major things that I'm seeing in socialization in general, um, and especially around like the psych, you know, the psychology, like pop psychology bleeding into socialization is like, you know, you'll see terms like, oh, you know, somebody trauma dumped on me and I don't understand why they're talking to me. They need to go talk to a therapist. Right. You know, and especially when like this person is, quote unquote, a good friend. Right. You know, it's one of those things where, like, what's a good friend if they can't, like, be upset and call you? Yeah, it, it's weird. I, I wonder about, like, the, the creation of terms for stuff. Uh, I've heard I heard comedians talk about this recently, like, breadcrumbing and love bombing and, and the extent <laughs> to which it was describing people's, like, experience. Like, are these manipulations actively a lot of the times? Or is it just, you know, people being kind of flaky and, like, you know, sending some messages and then not sending some messages for like, or, or even maybe having like serious life stuff that means that they just stop sending messages to people for a sec, you know? Um, right. You know, or just, I mean, you know, it's just one of those things where it's just like a lot of times, I think when it comes to things like, you know, ghosting or, you know, uh, a, a 
lot of communication issues is a lot of times people are overwhelmed and they're not consciously doing these things. Right. You know, or it's not like an obvious, obvious intent of like, I'm going to fuck up this person's day in life today. Ha ha. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, a lot of it is just like, oh, like, you know, I, I it, like, for example, for example, you know, I remember a friend of mine calling me up and she was just like, yeah, like, you know, this guy that I've gone on a few dates with, right, seems like he's having like a lot of, you know, major big issues in his life, you know, like it, it was one of those things where I guess like, you know, he had like multiple family deaths and whatnot. And she was just like, yeah, like, I just feel like he doesn't really have like justifiably the time to kind of pursue a relationship and his his thing has been like really you know because it's, i mean communication has been really spotty right so she was just like yeah like i think i'm just gonna call it off but i kind of also don't want to call him up when he's having all these problems and be like i'm dumping you on top of this <laughs> right i just right. want to make it official like we haven't talked in a while but i you know. <laughs> yeah, and so it was one of those things where she we you know she if she was going back and forth and she was just like yeah like you know I, I was kind of thinking about just like letting it fade because you know his inconsistent communication I think is just like sign enough you know and then like yeah and so it was one of those things where she was telling me like you know one person was like oh no you have to call and you can't just text you have to call and tell him in person or otherwise you're a piece of shit right and like another person was just like, oh, that's just manipulative on his part to not be communicating consistently, you know. And so it's kind of Jeez. interesting how how so many people would, you know, view the same situation and come out with very different things on top. Right. But but yeah, like it was one of those things where I just remember that conversation because she was just like, oh, like, you know, I just wanted to talk to you because now I'm so so confused after talking to my other friends. <laughs> I need another <laughs> There's friend. There's no to consensus about can, how to interpret this. <laughs> right. You know, how to like unpack everything here, you know, and, and I just remember like, you know, listening to the entire conversation because, you know, a lot of those like pop psychology terms are, were, were, you know, getting kind of, kind of bandied about. And, you know, I I'm also like pretty uh, guilty of, of using a lot of these terms myself. But, you know, ultimately it's it's one of those things where the one aspect of like, I think, you know, the the middle class thing has been that now like therapy has kind of replaced close personal intimacy in certain ways of like, oh, you're supposed to go to a therapy for those conversations. And I think about that too, because my wife and I, um, like our insurance, our present, we have Kaiser and we will probably switch, you know, uh, at some point, but, um, you know, doesn't cover like marriage therapy and a lot of plans don't, but they'll cover individual therapy. And, and I think about that because it must be the case that like, you know, um, we've gone to, you know, sort of a, as a, as a regular sort of informal gift to ourselves and each other, you know, we have a person that we check in with and then, you know, if we're having a difficult time or facing a hard decision, we'll talk with, uh, more often. And it's been great. You know, um, we, I mean, we just kind of were lucky because we had a good recommendation maybe. Um, and we sort of liked what we perceived about the person, uh, initially, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that we don't, that we treat these problems all individually like it's every person's like so individual to take care of themselves you know and not like families or couples you know 
you know, that have a, that, that should be like checking in with somebody, you know, and make sure that everyone's treating everyone, you know, well, and that the communication is happening. Um, because, you know, it must be that a lot of therapists are sitting there, like, I wonder what the other person would say about this. You know, I can't, I can't ask them, you know, directly, but I, I mean, I wonder how you feel about that, Ikoi. Like, do you think a lot of, a lot of therapy, if you could get it, if you could accomplish it, it would be better. I mean, in, in group settings, but there's, is it insurance? Is it the culture of it? What? I wonder why people. I mean, don't... I think I I don't necessarily like groups are hard, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I think there is a benefit to groups and there are benefits to individual therapy, and I don't think that they are, you know, they can be conflated because they do different things. Yeah. Right. Like group so you're, isn't. So you're saying I should see a therapist on myself on my own as well. <laughs> I mean, generally speaking, it it depends on, I mean, one, like, you know, if, if there are, like, if you don't have any major issues that you want to really work on in therapy, then there's no reason for you to see an individual therapist, right? If like the only reason that, you know, you're looking to um, get any kind of therapy is specific to like improving your marriage, for example, Right. Well, it's just it, it's it's such an important relationship, but obviously, you know, you have young kids. There's a lot of you know stress. So there's a lot of stress. <laughs> yeah, you know, and just time and and all these things. So, I mean, and yeah, I mean, like again, like you know, a lot of these these. It's I don't necessarily think group is better than individual. I think they're both important, but you know, as a with the exception of couples therapy, right? Because you are or family therapy, right? Um, I would say that like individual counseling is probably going to be more bang for your buck than group. Yeah. Um, Ian Parker, uh, one of the co-authors of uh, Psychoanalysis and Revolution, he was saying the mistake with, the mistake in thinking that just one-on-one therapy is just you uh, you know, it's false. It's, it's that ultimately there's more people in the room than just you and the therapist, right? Because you're bringing in all the relationships that are troubling Absolutely. you. So like even in one-on-one, really, it's sort of invisible group therapy, right? You're It's you having these arguments with these people in your head. <laughs> um, right. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just that you don't necessarily have to deal with, you know, overt personality conflicts and issues with other group members right. that you in group therapy, you know, because the vast majority of complaint in group therapy is that if somebody in the group really rubs you the wrong way, you know, you, you can't actually turn that into like a therapeutic thing uh, for people, you know, um, but that doesn't always necessarily happen. If you have issues like social anxiety, you know, groups can be extremely stressful for some people. Right. You know, so. Or, 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 or anger issues, you know, if people have, I imagine. Um, right. Or, I mean, if they have like, you know, emotional regulation issues, right, where right. they're bound to kind of like, you know, get set off and shoot off at people, that can be, you know, that can be really tough in to manage in group settings. So there's, you know, a group therapy. When it works out great, it works out great. When when it doesn't, it can really be tough. Um but yeah, ultimately there there is, there can be a certain and again, you know, this also just depends on the relationship you have with your therapist, right? Because if you really feel like you can't tell your therapist 
certain things, then, you know, there's no value in, in that therapeutic relationship ultimately. But so, you know, the, in the, the benefit of group therapy is that, you know, sometimes if you take a more passive stance, you still can get a lot out of it from listening. That was something that a lot of men described, you know, that, you know, when you come to the groups and and you listen initially, you know, four or five times a lot, you know, before you're asked to, you know, share very much other than your name, um, at least the groups that I looked at. Um, But then a lot of men said, you know, over time, I don't really share. I'll share when I think my sharing is going to help someone who has just come and decided to share. But, you know, the, the, the majority of what they're gaining is is listening you know and 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 there is this way i wonder sometimes you know if uh and and i wonder you know if if you have thoughts on this but it's just that people have lots of defenses from seeing themselves hopefully after a lot of therapy or a lot of practice you know you could you could recognize those defenses when they pop up but you know there is something strange about being able to see someone else's problems in, in a way that we sometimes have difficulties seeing our own problems or seeing ourselves the way that other people see us, you know? Um, right. And I, a lot of people describe that, that, that it was partly that it caught them off guard that they identified, you know, they're taught, like, I don't identify with anybody, you know? And, um, and then, you know, suddenly somebody tells a story and like, Oh my God, that happened to me. I've never talked to anybody about it, you know? So I, yeah, I wonder sometimes about the ability of, you know, it's like, it's like TV or like when you're, there's this thing where you feel like artificially safe or something, you know, because, you know, but then you can get emotionally sort of triggered and people describe this a lot that listening was actually the the therapeutic thing. And then also you see yeah. this at church, you see this at churches too, you know, I've gone to churches and, you know, when you're on the regular, like every week or so hearing about who's got cancer and how it's progressing and who's, who's, uh, uh, whose funeral is, is coming and who's got the, uh, the birth of a new child and who's, you know, being baptized and all this kind of stuff. Um, I don't want to say it relativizes your problems, but, but you know, it's, and I don't, I don't, I don't really want to imply that the, the answer for people that have lots of difficulties is just not stop focusing on themselves. Obviously, that's not true. You know, they need to focus on themselves in a lot of, you know, important ways. Um, it's just that sometimes people do get a bit in their own head about their problems and the feeling that their problems are so unique and that it's so shameful and nobody, you know, no one could understand what they're going through and it, they could never talk about it. You know, that going to a group sometimes has this effect of like, oh, you know. I'm not so strange. In fact, my problems are kind of tame compared to that guy, you know. Like, um, right. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, it can it it you know it can give you one a sense of relation to other people, but two, it can also give you a sense of perspective that way, right? Whether it's oh, like maybe I really do have a serious problem, or you know that oh wow, like you know this thing that had mushroomed into my head is such a big deal in that it maybe isn't you know, is, is something that's manageable, um, things like that, you know, so, so there are definite benefits to group therapy, but, you know, again, group therapy is one of those things where I think in order for it to be beneficial, uh, oftentimes it should be run well. And I guess that's true with all therapy in, in general is that it really does need to be run well to be, um, successful, but it can be, a difficult thing to like, you know, stay on track and manage various different conflicts and personalities that pop up within groups. There was a meme, sorry, a tweet the other day that I saved 
Um, the most selfish person you know is at therapy being told they're allowed to be selfish sometimes. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so like this idea that it, through the group thing, that listening is the thing opposed to just talking about your own particular stuff. It sounds, you know, makes sense, kind of profound. Right, right. I mean, there is that element of like, yeah, one of the issues that you will find in in some group settings is that, you know, people will want to dominate all the attention, you know. And so like when, when people, because I've heard that uh, little tweet more than once. Uh, and every time I think of that tweet, I, I think of like people who are just like, you know, won't won't allow people to get a word in. Do you ever have like a like a I'd read this thing about like a traffic light system uh, with speech, you know, essentially that when someone starts speaking as a green light, they should be getting to their point. You know, it's a yellow light. And then if they just keep going, it's like red light. You know, this person needs to be sort of shut down um, and then. But I'd read that not necessarily in a group therapy context, but just in a sort of general day-to-day -day sort of sociability thing. I was like, oh, that's a, that's a cool idea. Is that, is that I mean, something that turns So that out? is a social, that's, that is definitely, like, you know, people can, people can completely, like, derail. And, and again, like, not mendaciously, right? But just, like, through the process of talking about something. And it's it's all, all kind of individual assessment as a facilitator of whether, like, you know, this is a valid or a valuable kind of, you know, derailing or whether this is kind of disruptive or, or basically just not going anywhere. And also, like, you know, because this is a group, you do want to give people, other people, opportunities to talk. Um, so, you know, there are times when, when I, I will make the intervention of like, you know, I, I think we are veering off topic since you're veering into this topic. What do you think? You never like sigh out loud and go, oh, God. <laughs> you know, you know, Liam. I would love it. Would it would kind of actually be hilarious? You know, to do a skit of like where you're like the oblivious wrong therapist. <laughs> yeah. That would be a lot of fun, actually. What every th what every therapist is really thinking, or something like that. You know, right? You know, you, you can you can become the face of bad therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do have a charmed position on this podcast in that, that, you know, I'm not that. And so I can, yeah, poke fun at it, I guess. Yeah, but, you know, it is, it is. I mean, these are things that you constantly, I mean, these are things that you have to work with, you know, in individual sessions as well. You know, I guess there are, there are times when like, you know, clients will start talking about a subject and then they'll start talking about, you know, and when people do that, like, consistently it's like okay like it really seems like you're avoiding this topic <laughs> right 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 you know, it becomes information yeah yeah you know so and and you know all everything is 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 information you know because a lot of times people are critters of habit and pattern well this has been i mean uh it's been super interesting to um reflect on this because this is research of course not my most recent research and uh you know i'm, I'm writing a book about this but you know, when you are doing something like looking at a support group, it's clear you're thinking to yourself, you know, okay, I got a minor in psych. I was trying to double major and then the the scholarship office kind of got hip to the fact that I didn't really need a ninth semester. And uh, I've always sort of been enamored of, but never practiced 
of psychology. So you feel a little bit amateurish when you're in these groups, you know, as in there, in, in one case, in one of the groups, there actually are therapists present. But, you know, so it's difficult for me a lot of times to judge these things. And it's interesting to hear, it's been interesting to hear people that have worked in therapy, both in a group and individual context, um, reflect on the strengths and the weaknesses of it, you know, as a therapeutic practice. And also, you know, just the perspective of somebody who'd be far more likely to be observing that. So it's been super, you know, helpful for me as well uh, uh, to have that conversation because I often think, well, you know, whose opinion I really like about on this is, you know, somebody who's actually trained to think about it. So, you know, it was, it was fun research. I don't just want to say fun. It was very emotional uh, and engaging research to do and to, you know, spend time with these men and get to know them and hear their stories. But it's always great to sort of reflect upon it with people that, that have like a more of a capacity to do that than I came to the table with. So I appreciate that. It's also been nice to think about this in terms of the left, you know, ankle. So I appreciate that as well. You know, yeah. I went, I went I mean, there. I think, I think we're missing a huge opportunity. Oh, well, I think that all the time. I mean, this is sort of my personal hobby horse to, 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 to wail on, which is that, you know, I have positive views of religion, which a lot of people on the left do not, you know, not to say universally positive, obviously, but I mean, there's a, quite a lot to complain about. Um, but, you know, I also... You know, I know that group therapy is not seen positively by not only, I mean, mostly in, in at certain parts of positive, you know, in popular culture. So I, um, so I, you know, I feel like an amateur advocate for things that I'm not really, you know, maybe fit to be a representative of, but I do feel like what you're saying is true. Like there's things going on in these therapeutic contexts that people are describing also with Occupy and a lot of this organizing that my friend, for instance, in Spain has been talking to me about that, you know, we're missing uh, some of the emotional power of these institutions because people aren't just going to organize politically, you know, without it, you know, so whatever it is. that It's, it's it, much it's, harder. It's much harder to to organize politically without. without some emotional. Yeah. Without certain things. Um, you and, have something yeah, to believe so, in, right? There's got to be a sort of direction of travel. There's got to be the catalyst, the fire to want to do things and and believe that it can change, not just sort of do it and just be like, oh, we're all going to die. <laughs> you know, it has to be like towards something better. And, you know, religion to some degree solves that by like, hey, you're not going to die. Everything's going to be fine afterwards. And there was an interesting economics lecture I watched recently where he was saying that there was this, you know, period in time before you have like, the rise of economic productivity and that, that, that the people who were in charge of everything, you know, the landlords and the kings or whatever, squandered the money. Uh, they wasted it. They didn't put it back into production, but they what they did invest in was God. And as soon as sort of God as a concept was challenged to the degree that it was, that that's when the sort of economic growth thing took off, for better or worse, I guess. But it's interesting, isn't it, that maybe that, also maybe why debt was such an inspiring subject because it's tied to identity but you know money is tied to opportunity and the future and all that kind of stuff if you show well, I, I mean money is tied to your value as a person yeah <laughs> right you know the meritocracy is is ultimately about economics yeah i mean i i don't i just i just think you know there is this aside from the religion part because i don't i i'm somebody that is absolutely not a fan of religion but you know i will 
begrudgingly and happily um, admit that there are some key advantages to organizing. It got some good you songs know. as well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with when it comes to religion, I just think, well, you know, it's one of those things where ultimately like one of the, you know, things that I've always hated about religion is kind of like, you know, like you always have your church ladies, although it's not just women, it's heavily men as well. On on the left, there are way too many people that have very similar, like moralistic attitudes that are more about like berating people rather than helping people. Right. Nobody likes the church ladies. The church itself is fine. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, not not the church itself is fine per se, but that, you know, the, the whole concept of, of churches and religion isn't necessarily a bad one. Yeah, the feeling that you're being watched, right? Is it always... <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, it's one of those things where, like, you know, I think one of the benefits of these groups that you talk about is that you are actually, you know, telling, you know, you are trying to, you know, say, give people like, hey, like, you know, you have the ability to change. You do have, you know, that, you know, you can be different. Right. You know, and um, and, and kind of helping people be, you know the process of of change be there for their process of change you know and and that is a really important human thing to do yeah um, right and, and maybe a way too that you know would be inappropriate for a therapist to provide this kind of support like you know they they can't maybe you can't be someone's therapist and their buddy who's encouraging them to do therapy you know what i'm saying where where right 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 well i mean you know again like you can't call up your therapist at two in the morning you're just gonna get a fucking voicemail yeah, yeah. Right? Right. You know, and they're just going to be like, well, you know, I don't have an opening for another two weeks. Will Thursday at 4 p.m. for an hour work for you? Right? <laughs> well, there's also, Versus- there's, al- there's also that cred- credentialized stuff, you know. Um, equally, you spoke about that in the past as well. Just that, William, you're sort of saying like, uh, you, you, there's some maybe trepidation just being like, oh, well, I'm not a therapist, so I don't necessarily feel whatever when you were talking to all these men but at the same time it's like maybe the credentialization of everything is the best case scenario is it's just about some sort of guarantee that you're not supposed to have like a terrible advice or a terrible experience but clearly (laughs) you know if you uh, look at some of the guests on this podcast or just read any of these kind of um places online people are having terrible therapy you know with fully credentialized uh, people so <laughs> yes, it's like all the time yeah all the, all time. the and, time and 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 the, the worst version of the credentialized thing is it's just authority it's just hierarchy and then you 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 sort of encouraged to bow to it and so yeah that idea of the group being at best an egalitarian space where you learn with each other is is good <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's the thing that I found myself, you know, on the political side. When I was like, I'm studying, like, I, they're trying so hard to do egalitarianism. Like, I've never seen a group try so hard, you know. Um, not that it was always perfect, you know, and there was a certain dogma, obviously. And, and you know, I mean, there there were different layers to it, I guess. But, um, but yeah, that was one thing that I thought was sort of striking about. And there is a, a <clears throat> I described it in, in, in an article that I've, that I'm pretty, submitting now as like a laicization you know there's a there's a way where um they're they're 
they're not attacking the credentialization of, of, of therapy. And many of them, if they could afford it, I'm sure would seek therapists, you know, and in, like I said, in one of the groups, um, they, but there is a weird parallel between what's going on with evangelicalism, where you pull away from the authority of the church and its credentialing process and sort of some of your pastors are credentialed and some of them are just some guy that's been reading the Bible for a bit, you know? Um, so, you know, there's a, there are different attitudes, but attitudes uh, against, let's say, the professionalization of religious authority or therapeutic authority or whatever. So I don't want to like emphasize that. That's really more something I find interesting than I think most of my interlocutors would raise this like, this is my fundamental concern to, de to dethrone, you know, <laughs> therapy. And that's not, you know, that's definitely not what they're doing. But it's just, I, I just found that strange too. Like as a model of authority, you know, um, it, it's, it seems both weirdly Protestant in this way, um, in parallel to what's going on in Latin America in the religious sphere. And then also, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's sort of questioning, um, hierarchical authority, uh, uh, as, as, at least as necessary for certain kinds of therapeutic development. Um, so I found that interesting. Yes, and I actually have one one more random question is has anything in the immortality sphere brought up anything that reminded you of the masculinity? Well, yes. Um when I started studying masculinity, I actually thought about comparing three gyms because I am seeing the growth in this like uh one of the gender changes that's happening is you know men's growing attention to their bodies and and that being, you know, something that had largely been insisted upon of women. Um, but, you know, not that men had nothing to perform, you know, visually, but there's this I'm seeing in the town that I live in, which is urbanizing. I, I studied this town because sociologists and political scientists had studied it for its rapid change uh, it's in economic sectors and its rapid rate of growth in this area. And um, I was noticing a lot of these very quick urbanization trends. And, you know, uh, this, you know, this, this stuff about the body and care for the body uh, in men and the attention to their body and trying to maintain and, and perfect a certain aesthetic uh, was reminded me a lot of the masculinity stuff. Uh, I just didn't pursue that route when I studied, ended up studying men's groups. But yeah, I'm noticing a lot of, of this. You know, I, I, I've been taking part in some of the practices. Like I said, I've been doing intermittent fasting and like the uh, the cold exposure baths because that's stuff that they do. And, yeah. uh, you know, you it's and just- You minus the cold exposure. I don't do cold. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I've been doing it. And, and that's interesting, you know, because um, I do see uh, the other thing that men are doing, you know, is is they're starting to think maybe I should take care of myself too. You know, maybe, um, maybe I don't have to be totally vain about it, you know, to want to, you know, eat well and, you know, and um, take care of my body a little bit better and stuff. So um, th this, this teetotaling, this lack of drinking and evangelical and, you know, you know, religion and also AA and stuff is in some ways part of a broader, I think, turn towards men not treating their bodies just like as tools and and, and starting to treat them as like, you know, an integral and valuable part of, of themselves. So, yeah, I, I definitely would like to explore that whole subject as well in, a, in, another, in another podcast. Like the fitness stuff is sort of fascinating because I feel like a lot of it is aligned politically uh, not necessarily with the left, like in terms of the gym bro stuff, because it's because it's right. all about like so aligned with me and my self improvement and look at the gains that I've made that it's sort of yeah it individualism individualism literally on steroids right 
that well yeah it's 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 yeah i mean the left kind of went through a weird like lifting phase do you remember that william yeah um yeah i don't want to claim to have you know yes i I don't i don't claim (laughs) to have intimate knowledge of of that but like it was more like a lot more power lifting rather than like you know going to the gym to to lift weights kind of thing but yeah it was one of those things where it's just like oh yeah like it's that's interesting that you know uh, a fairly high i mean lifting heavy weights has is does have a certain level of risk associated with it right right and and i saw with the crossfit thing you know i mean and you know uh, people could hurt themselves obviously i mean the idea what i often find behind these health trends is just that there is some core or idea that's being expressed to some degree that's unhealthy, but that if right. you if you reined it in, you could perhaps get some gain from something they're pointing out. Like, for instance, that a lot of the exercises you do on some machine in the gym are not going to be really functional for you in everyday life. You know, so maybe you should mm-hmm. try to do something more functional. Maybe you don't need to pretend you're living in the Paleolithic, but you, maybe your balance of carbohydrates to other parts of your diet is just a little off. You know, like. A lot of there, there's some core truth to it that people are sort of exploiting uh, and sort of taking, like the liver man. You know, I'm sure you heard about this yeah. in the past few months. The liver right? king, <laughs> liver king, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, you know. I mean, right. that's that's what I see is is that yeah, like uh, I definitely see what Liam's seeing. There's a lot of certainly a lot of negative social effects, but in this way, I see it like religion. You know, it's like yeah, certainly. I mean, you could, it's it, there's tons of negative religious stuff going on, but the core of what they're some people are trying to do, and often the what I've noticed, uh, you know, studying ethnographically institutions like churches is that your eye gets drawn to like the most dramatic thing. You know, that's just the way our, our, our cognition works, you know? And so right. the person who's wailing the loudest or singing the loudest to church, who's like running around, throwing themselves against the wall at some Pentecostal church, you know, like, you know, that, that person's really going to catch my attention, but I, you know, I need to do something sociological a bit, step back and say, okay, yeah, but that's literally like not even a percentage of the people in here, you know? So it's, you, it, so, so like, I'm not saying like, for instance, the gym bros are a negligible part of like, you know, the, the part of um, people's attention to, you know, their diets and lifting and stuff like that. I'm just saying that I'm sure that for every gym bro, there's at least one person who's like, you know, I'm going to start doing resistance training because my doctor said it's going to improve my bone density or blah, 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 you know. Um, right. I, think that, I think there's loads of people like that and they're just like a yeah. bit put off by the gym. And, and, you know, this is one of the, it links to this subject as well that uh, Equa and I have spoken about. Um, I think Equa, you came up with a phrase, which was just that self-improvement shouldn't be left to the, just to the right wing. Like, you know, there is a version of self-improvement that is... You know, for everyone. Uh, well, I mean, that's that's important, right? That we, you know, that that's called growth. That that's what you know. That's the whole purpose of living. In some ways, is that you know, not that you attain perfection or that you attain an ideal, but like you, you know, you constantly challenge yourself to change. Yeah, I mean, I think this is partly what happens is that on the one hand, the left wants to be inclusive and to acknowledge that like, we can't just go around telling everybody to improve. A lot of people are not in a position to do it, be able to. So there's like a reluctance to want to feel like you're pressuring people in any way to improve. Good point. Um, and, and also to feel like you're being exclusivistic, like about disabled people, about, you know, X, Y. So there's there's quite, you know, a, a, a lot of energy and, and that's important and I'm, I'm pre- you'd only want to be a part of a movement that, that paid some attention to, you know, that. Uh, but then on the other hand, yeah, um, 
you do feel like when you see all these Jordan Petersons and you know people floating around that a good part of the 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 vacuum that's being filled is around self-improvement and and the desire especially of young men to do some of it and the lack of maybe you know alternative voices or voices that are appealing or whatever you know the, the lack of that because yeah. um because that's certainly part of what's going on you know it's like a lot of these people they never had any you know he there's this whole thing about clean your room you know and jordan peterson um that you know that it's like maybe that's more his earlier you know stuff but um <laughs> there was a big you know there's a big part of it that's like clearly people are lacking i lacked you know my parents got divorced and i lacked a male uh authority you know person or, or, or person who was a, a role model or a guide uh for a period of time so i don't mean to lament too hard on this topic but um but you know uh yes it shouldn't just be a the left shouldn't see anything to the right it shouldn't seed religion it shouldn't seed um you know uh, self-improvement i mean anything that's worth doing in, in human life you can't just you know say we don't do that that's right wing you know um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i mean I, certainly I, I find the exercise thing obviously it's sort of dished out almost like a torture for people that it's something you should be doing but if you can find a way in that's that you actually want to do and you know who knows where that motivation comes from but it's, for me, it's definitely essential. It's like I need right. to do something um, because it is a way of staying buoyant, like at its most basic, um, makes you feel good. So, and it, right. you know, I mean, we we are creatures that were meant to not be sedentary. Well, and I mean, isn't there? I think about like people's love for like. Look, I'm not. A, I'm not a tanky. I'm not. I'm not. You know, um, promoting you know, Sino or Soviet uh, eras of, you know, state propaganda. But there was a thing about the proletarian imagery of a lot of that stuff that also was clearly designed to appeal to men, you know, in 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 the imagery. Um, and uh, strong men, right? Strong yeah, proletarian. Well, and, and strong women. I mean, there, you know, there yeah, were a lot and of strong really, women as well. Yes, yeah. You know, that was the thing. It was the idea that you could have strength of any race of of any gender you know i mean but, but right right well, i mean of, of, you know i remember all the kind of you know now it would be like misogynist slants you know transphobic jokes back in the the cold war days during the olympics about like the the eastern german and like the russian or the ussr athlete women right are they really women <laughs> right right you know that that was kind of constantly floating around um back then uh because they were so, just strong yeah. and good at what they did yeah yeah you know um and that was i think again like you know i mean uh, fundamentally a lot of you know people get traumatized in because you know very rarely like exercise and the relationship to exercise isn't just like you know about um physical movement but a lot of emotional underpinnings to a lot of that you know it's not like people are lazy or it's not like you know people just want to you know sit around and you know well, and, feel schools, terrible. and again you know maybe this is a bit of a stuck record from my perspective but school can put you off that stuff like p oh, you know Huge. physical education lessons could be yeah absolutely a sort of emotional minefield right <laughs> um depending on the sport and the vibe yeah and, and you know pressure can definitely have the opposite effect of a lot of people 
Yeah. You know, I've had I've had friends, you know, whose parents sent them over to like, you know, they they called them fat camps back then during the summer where it was like diet camps. Right. Mm. Um, when they were teenagers, you know, and like, you know, listening to like a lot of their experiences around family, you know, around food and around, you know, movement and around exercise and all these things, you know, it's like if you start associating all those things with pleasing everyone else but yourself, of course, you're not going to want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. Yeah. You know, and I definitely didn't really sort of do regular exercise until I was not being forced to. It's like discovering it myself. And um, that was a really important thing. It was, it was, it's individualism, I guess, but, but it was mine, right? Like I wasn't being right. forced to, I wanted to, because it, it was positive um, in its outcomes and stuff like that. But then, you know, there's also a part of my brain that was programmed as a kid to like, man, I want to be like the Thundercats or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, <laughs> you know. Um, but that didn't really right. kick in until my 30s. So, you know, hello, hello, yeah, therapist. I mean, hmm. <laughs> Why is that? Yeah. But but, it- you know, I mean, ultimately, a lot of these, you know, one of the major issues within it, whether it's like, you know, if you think about it, whether it's gender or whether it's health is that like, you know, you have on one hand, you have people that are promoting these very strict, narrow ideals, mm. right? You know, whether that's gender or health, you know, and then you have another group saying, nah, that sucks, right? Fuck you, um, which is fine, you know. But, you know, it's also one of those things where, again, like so many conversations end up with two extremes talking at each other with very little to offer right. for people as, as like a real solution, right? You know, so a lot of times, you know, you do have like all these fitness guys and, and women as well that are just like, ah, you lazy bastards, get your ass up, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. go, go work out, right? You know, and then you have, I mean, understandably, you know, you have, if you want to be considerate of people, you say, well, you know, that's not necessarily helpful. No. You know, but then you don't have a whole lot of like, what is actually helpful that is helpful. Well, the thing is, again, it's this identity thing and what group you belong to or don't. And it's like someone like uh, Henry Cavill, you know, the guy who played Superman, ties this thing perfectly together. It's like, here's a guy who's jacked and he likes painting models, figurines, you know, plays Warhammer. And it's like, yeah, why can't right. you, why can't these different things that operate in different universes be combined? Why can't you enjoy exercise and also sort of nerd out on particular things? Um, instead, there's this sort of like pressure to just identify with like, I am just this. And I am not doing anything there, else. There is a very narrow ideal uh, and nothing else, right? You know, like to this day, you'll constantly hear, you know, women go like, oh, like, you know, is working out going to make me muscular like a man? <laughs> yeah, it's mad though, because it, it takes a lot. It takes a lot right, to right, build it's, muscle. It's one of and those so, things where like, so you, do you understand like... all the work that the guys do to actually get to that point? You know, uh, um, but again, you know, I've also talked 
talked about how we, you know, none of us are really ever taught how to understand our bodies, much less our emotions, right? How to actually like operate as a human being isn't part of the educational system. It's a really good point. Yeah, yeah absolutely. All right, we should end it there because it's nearly yes. three hours and that was a pretty good place to end. Cool. Well, awesome. thanks, uh, Leah and Nikoi. Great yeah, to talk to thank you. Guys. Thank you so much. All Take right. care. Take, Take care. care. See you later. Bye.